just want to apologize to everybody on the live stream. I forgot to turn the microphones on. So you should be able to hear now. Yeah. <laughs> so this week, I ran into a little bit of trouble. As is often with trouble, it makes really good sermon illustrations. So last week, I got, I got inspired. Okay. I went to Frederick Meyer Garden's bonsai show. I saw some of the most amazing bonsai trees I've, I've ever seen in person or in my life. And in case you don't know, let me just tell you what bonsai is. Bonsai is where you take a normal species of tree, like the Norway spruce we have out here, or American elm or oak. Any tree can be a bonsai tree. And you keep it in a pot, and you keep it really small, and you style it so that it looks like a big tree. So it's like this art of patience, and it's just kind of a fun, natural thing to do. And the word bonsai just means planted in pot, okay? So it's just a Japanese word, means planted in pot. That's what bonsai is. So I went to a bonsai show where, where people are doing these. Let me show you some pictures of my favorite trees that are there. This is a boxwood. We, we're planting some of those right outside the church. They make great bonsai. I have one. Uh, this is a Brazilian rain tree. I think these are maple species of maple. This is an elm. These are larches, a larch forest. And the forest, I think, are some of my favorite plantings. It's where you take a bunch of trees and you put them together to make it look like a forest scape. So as I was driving home, um, right out here on the belt line, if you're driving north and you're looking at the church, right before you come to where we mow our grass, there's a bunch of gray dogwood, which grow into like a bush. Um, but they are really, they really look like tiny little stand-up trees and they make a great forest. So I, I saw them, I was like, this is going to be perfect. I'm going to make my own forest planting. So... I, I got home on Sunday after I went to the bonsai show. Amber, you know, was doing her own thing. I was like, hey, I, I got stuff to do. So I grabbed my wheelbarrow, I grabbed my shovel, and I went and I started digging up these gray dogwoods. So let me show you a picture of me outside. I was working, you know, I was, I, it was a lot of work to separate all the roots to get back to like, you need just the roots of that particular plant to plant because there's not that much room in the pot. So I was, I was in my zen. I was, you know, I was happy. I was in the sun. Uh, I was filled with glee. I'd been planning to do this for a long time. I had a special order uh, pots that are the right size, you know. So this is what I was doing last week. Let me show you. Let me show you the end results. I brought my trees. <laughs> these are not all of my trees. Um, and keep in mind, these are in training. So they have many years to go before they're really, really good. But... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've been collecting. So this is my boxwood. This is a larch. You can see how you know its styles look like big tree. This is that gray dogwood forest that I built together. So as the trunks thicken up, you know it's going to look really neat. You know, you have forced perspective to get smaller to go back. So you can come up in here and look at these. This is a, a tilia cordata. It's called a basswood. Right here. It's kind of really, really excited about what it's going to turn into. So you, you can come look at the trees afterwards if you want a closer look. So I, I was really happy working on my trees. I have a bunch of them in my backyard that I'm working on just in the early stages. So little did I know in the midst of my pleasure, evil was hiding. So I went to bed that night extremely happy. All my bonsai trees were watered and potted up, sitting out in the sun. 
I had a great dinner. It was just overall a great Sunday. And as I was sleeping, I began to become more and more restless. It was about 3.30 in the morning, and I woke up to the sound of my body scratching itself. I had poison ivy. Mm. Immediately, I got up, took a shower, and walked downstairs and, and tried to sleep on the couch, but I couldn't fall asleep. I was just ridden with guilt because you know, I probably gave it to Amber at this point. I didn't know for sure. I was itchy. I, I couldn't get back to sleep. And I thought it was only on my one arm, but by 6 a.m., I realized it had spread all over my body. So then came the worst part. When Amber woke up, I had to tell her that I probably gave her poison ivy um, and that I didn't know that I had it. I didn't see any. It must have been like roots that were growing or something, you know, hadn't sprouted yet. If I had any inclination, I would have taken all the precautions, you know, triple wash my body with like dish soap, you know, just like if I had any idea. So Amber's alarm went off at 5.30. I told her, hey, you should probably take a shower because you probably have poison ivy. Turns out she did. I feel so bad. Amber, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so the last time I got poison ivy, I really learned my lesson. I went to get steroids right away because that really helps take the edge off. So that's what I've been dealing with this week. Um, and I look pretty good right now. My left hand is still kind of swollen. But this is what I looked like earlier in the week. My face was pretty swollen up. I looked like a chipmunk. Um, and, you know, my arm was like flaming red and, and super itchy. And it, it was just, it's been a pretty rough week. Luckily, I'm doing much better now. So the morning I told Amber, hey, I have poison ivy, and you probably do too, she said, this is a perfect analogy for sin. I said, you're right. So when life gives you poison ivy, you might as well make a sermon illustration out of it. So isn't this our experience with sin in general? Isn't that what the Bible warns us about? And on first appearance, everything is fun. It's enjoyable. You're digging around in the soil and you're having a great time. But right under the surface lies the poisonous roots of sin that are going to cause you great pain and probably hurt the people you love. Not only does this analogy of sin and my poison ivy affect me, but it affected Amber. It spread to her and to everything we touched. So we had to go and wash all, you know, like the door handles and all the tools I used and the table, you know, just like to make sure the oils aren't sitting there to be spread again. And God, being much wiser than we are, knows the truth about sin, even if we fail to see it. So not... Uh, so does anybody know the first time this word sin is used in the Bible? Does anybody have a guess the first time the word sin is used? Genesis 2. You're getting close. That's the first time sin was introduced to the world through the fall of Adam and Eve, right? But the first time that sin is actually used is in the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. So you're really close. So let's go ahead and take a look at that now. Genesis chapter 4 right here at the beginning of the Bible. And I'm going to kind of catch you guys up to what's happening in the story. So God creates everything. He creates the world. He creates a perfect garden. And he has this, this paradise. And he puts two people in it, Adam and Eve. And at first things are going pretty well. But then Satan gets involved and he comes and he tempts Eve to do the one thing that God told them not to do. And they eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. 
She gives it to her husband. And then things go downhill, right? That's when sin enters the world, although it's not the first time the word sin is used, but that's when sin enters the world. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, out of paradise, and the world is cursed. Poison ivy appears, and mosquitoes, and ticks. And so, at some point after they got kicked out of the garden, Adam and Eve have two sons. Incidentally, one of them is named Cain, and the other is named Abel. Abel raises livestock, and Cain, he's a gardener. Which, ironically, I'm feeling a lot like Cain this week. <laughs> so they both decide to, uh, to give sacrifices to God, and that's where we pick up the story. Look at Genesis chapter 4, starting verse 3. So it came about in the course of the time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the first firstlings of his flock and of their fat portion. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why... Has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin, this is the first time we see it, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So not only do I mess with plants like Cain, but I feel like I was messing around with evil this week like Cain was, right? And incidentally, Cain gets this curse, this visual mark on his body that people know. And so the poison ivy, I don't know, just a lot of analogies here. <laughs> but the first time the word sin is mentioned in the Bible, we get this expression, this imagery of what sin is all about. We get this idea that it's this predator, so you're like in the safety of your home, and then there's this predator right on the other side of the door waiting for you to walk out, and it's going to devour you. It's going it's to pounce on you, tackle you, and kill you. So that's what I felt like when I was digging around the roots, right? It was, it was all safe, but right under the surface, right under the topsoil, there was this evil wedding waiting for me, and it was going to spread. And just like Cain, I fell victim to the evil. So that's what sin is. And sometimes we don't see it coming and we underestimate its effects or we try to justify it by saying it's not that big a deal or it only affects me, it doesn't affect other people. But the truth is, if sin is allowed to have a hold in our lives, it's going to spread and it's going to affect others and ultimately it's going to offend God and impact your relationship with him. And that's exactly what Paul shows us in 1 Corinthians 5. Go ahead and turn there with me. We're going to look at this little story of about a particular sin. So Paul is writing this letter to the church, a church in Corinth, so the group of believers, believers there. And overall, they are a lot like we are. They're doing some things really well. Other things, they're not doing so well. And one thing that grabs Paul's attention is that they have this sin that they're letting stay in their church. right? They ha they're dealing with this person inappropriately because they're not 
They're not looking at the sin negatively. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 5. We're going to read the first eight verses. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is an immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not even exist among the Gentiles. And someone has his father's wife. That's the sin right there. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that one of you who have done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in the body but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven, so that you may, have, may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So what do we see here? The details are a little murky about what the sin actually is, but there's this man who is sleeping with his mother or his stepmom or his mother-in-law. Whatever the situation, it's not right, okay? And to make problems worse, the church is actually proud to have this member, that this man be a member of their church. They don't see any problem with it. They're happy to have him there. They're not trying to talk to him about it. They're not trying to stop him. They're boasting about it. And Paul sees this tolerance of sin as a foothold for the destruction of their church. So Paul goes to use this analogy to help them understand what he's saying. In verse 6 we see, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? So here's how leaven works. Here's what it is. It's not quite like the yeast that we use to raise bread. It's actually, yeah, I looked at you, Deb. I looked at all the bakers in here. You know, it's not quite like the yeast that we normally use. It's where you actually take a piece of dough from the lump of dough before you bake it and you set it aside. That way, the next time you go to make bread, you mix it in, right? But the entire time, you take this lump out and you set it on your counter, set it in your cupboard, you put it in a box, and you're in the Middle East, you're in Israel, there's no refrigerators. You know, like, this thing's getting nasty and moldy and it's just sitting out, waiting for it to be put into the batch that you're going to make next time. So Paul is using this leaven to talk about sin. He's not the first to do this. This idea of this impurity entering into the lump is something that we see in scripture before so it actually helps us to understand what paul is saying if we have a greater understanding of jewish culture like he and the church of corinth did so every year jews celebrate the passover festival and then they celebrate the festival of unleavened bread so this is a time they use to commemorate how god rescued israel from egypt and set them apart and made them his holy people So a part of the Exodus event, as you may recall, is that God commanded the Israelites to sacrifice his lamb, to eat it, and to cook unleavened bread because they didn't have time to make leavened bread because they had to do a quick overnight eat and they were leaving the next morning. And that's when God liberates them from the Egyptians. So they quickly bake this unleavened bread, they sacrifice, they eat it, and they're gone. 
And every single year to remember this miraculous event that God did for the Israelites, the, people, the Jewish people celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. And as it grew, the Jewish people began to go around their houses and have this tradition where they took every single, they looked in every single nook and cranny to clean out anything that could have leaven in it. They go through, they, they look in their corners, they look under their beds, they pull up the cushions off of the couch, you know, the place where all the nasty things hide. And they clean it out, they sweep out every crumb. That way there's no leaven in their house at all. And this has come to symbolize purity. This act of going through your house is like re-establishing yourself as pure and holy. So this is what Paul is talking about here. Let's take that, what we know about this Jewish context, and apply it back into 1 Corinthians. And we see in verse 7 that he's trying to make this analogy that you need to remove the leaven from yourselves before it affects the entire lump, before it corrupts all the dough. Because even a little bit of leaven, just a little clump, and if you mix it in, it's going to make the whole bread rise. Just like poison ivy oils. <laughs> Initially, the only thing that I touched was the poison ivy was my hands, right? But then by the end of the night, it had spread all over my body and onto amber. And if we aren't careful, and we let sin have that place in our lives, before we know it, it grows and it spreads and it affects us. Paul knows this, which is why he told the church in Corinth to no longer put up with this sinner, to metaphorically, to get rid of this unleavenedness, to use that analogy, to remove the sin from their midst. Now, of course, Paul knows that we're all sinners, right? And no one else in this church body here is being perfect. So why is he picking on this one guy? Well, it's because... They were okay with it. They were boasting about it. They weren't doing anything about it. They thought it was okay. So they were kind of protecting that sin inside of them. Kind of like you would set aside a lump of leavened bread for your next batch. They were doing it on purpose. And while this verse is 100% applicable to a church body like us, if we had something like that going on in our church, we would have to address it. But I think it's also a perfect analogy apply to us on an individual level. Because we can hide and protect sin in the dark corners of our lives. We can let them take hold in the cracks of our heart. And we protect them because sometimes we even enjoy them. But Paul is saying if we let sin have this foothold, it will spread and it will destroy. Even now I'm itching. <laughs> I can't help it. So here is how I want us to think about it and apply it to our lives. Number one, don't play around with sin. Over and over and over again in the New Testament, sin and pleasure are talked about as deceitful things. Interesting word, isn't it? Deceitful? It means to trick, to lie, to con. That's exactly what sin does to us. It cons us. It tricks us into thinking that we're actually getting what we want. When in reality, we're opening up the door for that predator to come in and devour us. Cain thought that killing his brother was going to make him happy. Sin was lying to him. Tricking him and drawing him in and telling him that's what he needed to do. But it turns out 
unsurprising to us because we've read it. The sin ends up destroying Cain and he curses him and it follows him for the rest of his life. And Paul knew the story of Cain, right? He looked at the Old Testament, he knew the story of David and Saul and he looked at how these sins corrupted people and his own personal experience and he wants us to stop playing around with sin. So let's learn from other people's mistakes. Let's learn from my poison ivy encounter so I can save yourself from the metaphorical struggle of that. Don't mess around with sin or it's going to get messy. Okay, so here's the second thing that Paul is trying to teach us and I think is extremely profound and we'll miss it if we don't look into it uh, deeper. He says, become who you are. In verse 7, look at 1 Corinthians 5, you still have it open. In verse 7, he says, clean out the old leaven so that you may become a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. So what Paul is saying here is that you're already made clean. You are already unleavened. That's why you need to get this rid of get this out of your lives. Christ has already called us out of sin. He's already called us to a new way of life. He's sanctified us. He's made us holy. Paul knows that the church in Corinth has been set apart and made holy by Christ. We know that we're set apart and made holy by Christ. And what Paul is asking us to do is become actually who we already are. To put that sin out of ourselves. To push it out. To go through all the nooks and crannies. To go through all the cracks and clean out that sin in our lives. Because Christ has already been sacrificed for us. And with his sacrifice and the Holy Spirit working in us, we can be purified. In fact, we are purified. And we can remove that leaven from our lives. We can take the poison ivy out of the, out of the soil. We can get rid of it. Number three, I want us to examine the sin in our lives. As Christians, people who have been following God for a long time, some of us, our entire lives, I think we can become blind to our sins. It can hide like the invisible poison ivy in my soil. And isn't, exactly, isn't that exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth? They, they had the sin in their midst. It was so obvious to Paul. I'm sure someone who is more skillful in botanical knowledge would have said, hey, Josiah, you should probably stop messing around with that because <laughs> there's poison ivy right there. He, he could see that. And so we need to examine ourselves because sometimes there's sins that we get really comfortable with. And they're just sitting there and they're hiding or they're just sitting in plain sight, but we're blind to them. So I encourage you to identify where you may be sinning in your everyday life. Something that you might have become blinded to. And I want you to become willing to deal with it. I want you to put a name to your generic sin. Because often we say, yeah, we're sinners. We know that, like, everybody's sin. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, blah, 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 blah. But it's much more difficult to examine ourselves and say, actually, I did this. I sinned in this exact way. So here are some examples of how we can easily let sin creep into our lives. We can let pride, our egos, take over for us. They can, we can put ourselves over others. We can place ourselves as more important. We can love ourselves more than others. That's not what Scripture calls us to do, right? Scripture calls us to love each other as ourselves. 
Maybe we have short tempers. We let our anger burn without checking it. Maybe we struggle with gluttony, and I'm talking to myself here. How often do we overindulge, purposefully filling ourselves above what we need just for our pleasure? That's something that God does not call us to either. And that can be applied to more than just food. It can be applied to a lot of different practices in our lives. We can covet things. Maybe we're thinking we're driving down the road and we see that, that Porsche Taycan driving down at the golf course, you know, or a Maserati, or you're driving by that house and you're like, wow, that's super nice. And we may be coveting in our hearts when we don't even really realize it. Or maybe gossip has come out of our mouths too easily. Or maybe we're trying to work things out by our own power. We're not relying on God, and that fills us with anxiety and worry because we're trying to take care of everything by ourselves. Or even a lack of mindfulness. Because we're going through God and we're only through our day and we're only focused on our needs, we're only focused on our desires at the moment, what we need to get done, and we're not looking at what God's doing around us. Now, we aren't going through this exercise of naming our sins to degrade ourselves. We're doing it in pursuit of Christ. We're doing it because we are learning from the people who came before us. We're doing it because we love God. And the second that we become complacent and we think we're doing okay, that we're comfortable in our daily lives, I think is the time we're most susceptible to letting these little sins enter into our lives and start spreading. I had no cares in the world when I was digging through the soil <laughs> on my bonsai trees. I was, I was in my happy place. I thought I was safe, but I couldn't see the danger right in front of me. And just like poison ivy, by the time I realized it was out of control, it was too late. It had already done its damage. But here is the hopeful thing. By doing this examination, we're not doing it by our own power. We aren't fighting this battle alone. We have each other to hold us accountable. And we have God's power and spirit moving in us. We have a Heavenly Father who's working to support us. We have Jesus who's lived that example and is also here to guide us. So I encourage you this week to put specific names to your generic sins. That we can weed them out. That we can live a life more closely following Jesus' example. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for protecting us, but also for giving us wisdom to see into our hearts, to see who we really are and things that we need to change. I just pray that through your spirit this week, we can become convicted, appropriately convicted, of the sin that's been hiding in our lives, and that you can help us rid that so that we can live closer to you in this example of your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.